hey, before we start, oh, I know the dreaded words. Is you going to read an ad? No, this is something that's going to help you. Trust me, because this podcast is fascinating, and it's going to give you a lot of things that you're going to chew over for a long time, and maybe, maybe have a hard time getting to sleep as you wrestle with the thorny issues that we talk about. Well, let me tell you about something that will make it very easy for you to get to sleep. Now, I don't know if you think, hmm, sleep and Christmas gifts, do they necessarily go together? Uh, I don't know. It depends what kind of shopper you are. I mean, some people keep notes all year long so they can get just the right presents. Or maybe you're one of those people who just can't wrap anything at all. And you find it difficult to shop for people and it's just, it's a nightmare, all of it. Well, listen, the gift that everybody wants is a gift that's something you want tonight. Better night's sleep. Bowl and branch. They never disappoint. They have highest quality sheets, blankets, pillows, and throws. Plus, their holiday packaging makes your gift look and feel special. And trust me about this. One of the things I'd like to talk about is how unboxing your bowl and branch sheets is like unboxing an Apple product. It's just put together with such care. It's a gift. In other words, no matter how you wrap it, when they open up the box, that's even more wrapping. It's a great thing to give somebody on Christmas. Thinking about buying a set based on my fine recommendations? Well, here's what you do. You tell yourself this. Why would I get these sheets? Well, they hold themselves, Bowling Branch does, to high standards across the board, from sourcing pure organic cotton to putting workers' rights first. It's not just their sheets that are made the right way. Their pillows, their bath towels, and robes are, too. The signature hemmed sheets are their all-time bestseller for a reason. They're beloved because, well, for one thing, they get softer with every single wash. I can testify to this. I've had them for years, and they're just absolutely like butter. The buttery, soft, lightweight, made with 100% organic cotton weave. It feels incredible in all seasons. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bowling Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready for their special holiday packaging. And if you order by 1219, that's December 19th, you get guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Best deals of the year going on now from the 18th of November to the 22nd of November. Act fast. Promo code ricochet at bowlandbranch.com for the best deals. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code ricochet. Exclusions may apply. And we thank Bowling Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And speaking of which, on with the show. I can say it's like, am I the only guy, or am I just being a jerk? I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. Domestic terrorism from white supremacists is the most lethal terrorist threat in the homeland. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Lott. I'm James Lilacs, and today we talk to Ross Douthat of the New York Times. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody, to the Ricochet Podcast, number 571. How did we get this far? Why? By people like you, as they say on NPR. Join us at Ricochet.com. Be part of the most stimulating conversations in the community on the web. And by the way, you have heard us mention this recently. We've started a new feature for Ricochet members. you got to be a member. It's called No Dumb Questions, where we take your questions, which aren't dumb. And they're smart. We take your comments, and we take them to notable guests. Next week, we've got the Babylon Bee Editor-in-Chief, Kyle Mann. And that's 
that's going to be hosted by some uh, short tour from Minnesota. So we'll take your questions for Kyle. And yes, you can pitch him your jokes, too. Maybe uh, he'll buy one right there on the spot and Venmo you the money. Join us Tuesday, November 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. But remember, you got to be a Ricochet member to join these events and see them. So please sign up today at ricochet.com slash join. It's cheap. Get your first 30 days for free. That's even cheaper. As mentioned, uh, or maybe not, I'm James Lilacs in pre-winter desolate Minnesota. Peter Robinson is in sunny California, and Rob Long is in even sunnier Madrid. Peripatetic flaneur that he is. Uh, yes. What brought What brought you to... Okay, I assume you've been there for about six or seven hours, so give us a complete and full rundown yeah. on Spanish politics. What my Uber driver said on the way in from the airport. Right, the, the um, mood of Europe. The mood of Europe. Uh, well, I, I, am, I, I have to say, as I just spent a week in France, and I came here, I'm meeting the family, we're all sort of traveling around. Spain for Thanksgiving. That's kind of my uh, my brother and sister in law and their fa- that my niece and nephew. That's kind of their thing. They have a week, a little bit longer than a week, but they want to do something. And uh, my mom's game. And uh, as long as the grandchildren are there, my mother's going to come along. So what the hell? What am I? What am I supposed to do? Just eat turkey alone? So I'm here. Um, <laughs> Is that San Geronimo uh, out of out the window? That, that could be. It could be. Are, you, yeah. are you two blocks from the Prado? I am across the street from the Prado. Oh, I know you. exactly where you are. Yeah. I know exactly. In fact, I think I know the building you're in. You probably You're do. living well. Why are you? Wait a minute. What's tonight? What happened? Friday. What happened? Wait, 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 what, the Prado's free for the last hour in, uh, of the evening on Friday. You should be across. Let's skip this podcast. Go look at Las Maninas. Believe me, I was, I made that, I made those very arguments to our, to our leader. You can't do that. But I want to say that I, I, uh, I briefly mentioned this last week, but I want to say it again. Um, for the no dumb questions thing. It's for members only, and I, I think the, the – uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not clear. No dumb questions doesn't mean you can't ask dumb questions. It means, it means that no questions – No such thing. You're supposed to ask dumb questions. Um, however, we had uh, – everybody heard – I hope you did – I hope you heard. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya was on our first one um, a few weeks ago, and they're, they're, the only dumb questions came from me. And then very smart, really specific, <laughs> sophisticated, and sort of scientifically literate questions came from the Ricochet members, such that at the end, and I think we still have that audio somewhere, he, he was like, wow, these questions are amazing. I, uh, everybody's like really well-informed. He was kind of like exhausted by the hmm. fact that the, the questions, except for me, were, were uh, thoughtful. So um, if you're thinking about joining Ricochet, join just to uh, maybe ask some dumb questions. I wouldn't mind a few just to join me in those. Anyway. Okay. That was can, not about can, can we? Can may I return to James's yeah, question? Absolutely. I'm, I'm just for those of most people won't be able to see you. Only a few will be able to see, but everybody will hear. It. But I'm just I can I know that one of Edith's very best friends was married in that that church. That was the royal the Church of Coronations and so forth for several hundred. Years. Okay, enough of that. Right. Um, I should but note back to the to James, audience. You spent a week in France, and here's 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 my thinking about France. That country's been on the decline since Napoleon returned from Moscow. De Gaulle, De Gaulle's great achievement was taking office and keeping the communists out of office, but he did so by puffing up delusions. You can't meet a Frenchman today who doesn't claim that his grandfather was in the resistance. Okay. And they haven't, they've, they've been difficult. Uh, they, don't, they, they, they don't know what to do with their Muslim um, uh, immigrants. It's just a mess. And then you go to Paris, and it's the sweetest life on earth. So yeah. de-conflict me. 
de-conflict me? Why does France always enrapture us when we're there, but the moment we leave, we think, oh, this country is doomed? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week. It's not doomed. Um, I mean, instead, except in the sense that we're all doomed, um, it's 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 been going fine for as long as it can. It has these these big problems you mentioned? Paris itself, I mean, it's a kind of a reverse situation in France. Um, in, in if a city takes all the money, and so there's an enormous amount of you know tributes being paid to Paris. A lot of it is done happily, so the city itself can be this kind of great place. France itself, like if you go, I was in Marseille for four, three, four days, and uh, Marseille is just a big, bustling city, lots of ports. It's kind of cool too because it's right there on the Mediterranean. It has this kind of great glamorous thing, and you can sort of sit and get a glass of wine for very cheap. Um, I mean, by the way, the wine. It's no good, but you can sit there and look out over the Mediterranean and the rocky sort of promontories and the uh, uh, the, the kind of weird fortified fortified um, uh, constructions on the on the horizon. And it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of Monte Cristo. That's exactly what it is. Um, I was so much so that I was sitting. I had dinner last night, and there's a table of four people next to me, and. Uh, one of the guys, and I was like trying to like you speaking too quickly for me to fully kind of get it all. But I, about a third of the way in, as I was eavesdropping, I heard I thought, "Oh my God, he's telling them the story of the Count of Monte Cristo." <laughs> Wonderful. And and he added this one thing, which I had I, I didn't know, which was that you know in Cuba, the the cigar rollers. By the way, interrupt any point. I'm just talking here. Cigar rollers. The ladies would roll the cigars. And they make cigars, and they would sit in, in these giant um, workhouses, or, you know, workshops, mm -hmm. ateliers, right? Mm -hmm. And somebody would read to them. They'd have mm -hmm. somebody at the front of the room reading to them on a microphone, and that was kind of one of the. It was kind of a very sweet, very elegant way to get these, uh, you know, these women to roll cigars and make their lives a little bit better, their working lives a little bit better. And the most requested book was the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, according to this, my neighbor at this restaurant, and uh, and what he said is that everyone you could see in the room was the, you know this international room, but there were also a bunch of like locals there, like nodding, like of course that makes total sense because we could all hear him at a certain point. Um, anyway, that was just a little slice of life. But and and the other I would say is that these these are people who have been through it, COVID wise, and they are done. Fresh or in Europeans nation. in general. Europeans in general, at least the, to the in Spain and France, I can say they are, they are. It is over. They uh, yeah, they are. They are done. Meaning no masks. Meaning um, in in Spain, they're a little bit more careful with the masks indoors, although they have an eighty percent vax rate. Uh, they, they they say. Um, in in France, and certainly in South of France, they don't care. In, in fact, they they so don't care in the South of France that they have these little cartoon. Ad, public service ads everywhere of a little little kid, you know, a little like a cherub-faced kid saying in French, um, même en sud, on porte les masques, like smiling, which means that even in the <laughs> South wearing masks, which even of course is not, clearly not true. Well, this is very strange. How can that be? How can the baleful influence of Donald Trump, the mega science deniers of the U.S., extend to Europe? I don't understand. I mean, we're at, we're having a big surge in Minnesota. We're one of the worst in the country, if not the worst today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's mostly outstate, and it's uh, the counties, if you look at the ones that have the worst rates, they're the most conservative, and so people are naturally making all the usual assumptions. And interestingly enough, pouring into those people all of their hatred 
of these lumpen yeah. depor- uh, these lumpen deplorables. Everything about them, from their religion, their beliefs, their economics, everything about them is they, they deserve this in so many ways. It's like COVID is the little finial that finally says you get what you deserve for believing what you do. It's not um, it, it, it's not pleasant to read. But they believe that 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 if you are maskless and you are not going about your life as if it is a dire thing, then you are then you are a delusional science denier, Donald Trump. So, so the idea that Europeans are over this. Hmm. It's, I, I remember back in the 80s, I was talking to a friend who was married to a Frenchman, and they'd come back from Paris, and she was complaining bitterly about the homeless situation in Paris. And I said, I said, how long has Ronald Reagan been, been president of, of France? <laughs> and she was shocked, because at, at the time, we were blaming all homelessness on Ronald Reagan. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the idea that there might be other cultural things at work is just sort of anathema. There, there's the, the, the idiots in the U.S. who are spoiling everything, and then there's the virtuous Europeans so that's interesting to note, Rob, and that uh, because we're always being told we should be more like the Europeans. All right, then we should just give an F and take off the masks and get on with our lives. Is that what you mean? Exactly. That's, ex- that's exactly what I mean. And um, you know, I, I have to stand up for the French in this respect. And, and the, the French are cynical and practical, and all sorts of things, but they they are never been as reflexively anti-American as the Americans have felt. They they certainly showed no showed zero gratitude. Uh, oh, not zero gratitude. They named a bunch of uh, boulevards after Roosevelt and, and Wilson, but they didn't. They didn't. You know, they they got over it pretty quickly. Uh, uh, the, the sort of World War II stuff. Um, but in general, they like they're kind of like your cynical friend. But they're 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 allies. Um, you well, know. yes. I mean, Johnny Holiday is 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 a a port of Elvis to them, and nothing says more about French culture at the time that they celebrated this guy who embodied so many of these American sort of archetypes. I have a yeah, French right. my French brother-in-law when I came when he came here, still French to the core. In all of his way, he has a, an app on his phone that he uses to to dissect and and to evaluate every wine he has, every bottle. All the, and he's just astonishing collection of bottles to, to, to begin with. And he can tell you if it's from the north side of the river or the south side, depending on the taste of it, or so he says. Um, so he's very French in that aspect. When it comes to French foreign policy and French power and all the rest of these things, he's just, I, he's a Frenchman. But at the same time, when he came here, one of his happiest moments was when we were all driving around the wine country in California, and he'd rented a convertible. And yeah. he had on some Ray-Bans. Right. And this was This was the dream. This is a dream for a lot of people in a lot of places because that's 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 a that's a that's a, an option open to all. Anybody can come to America, get a convertible and some Ray Bans, put Elvis on this, and you are part of an American experience. Difficult for me to go to France and have a similar thing. I can't, for example, put on a striped shirt and go to a cafe and start playing an accordion <laughs> and feel as though I'm somehow intrinsically, uniquely, perfectly inhabiting the French model. That's what I like about America. Maybe that's what they like about America, too. You can come yeah. here, and you can still be La Franchman, but at the same time, enjoy everything in the bounty that this country has to offer. Speaking of bounty, before we get our guests, i got to say so. Uh, CBO released a score of the, oh, build right. back, of the Build Back Better, the triple B, and they estimated that before taking the uh, meeting here, before taking the effects of stricter tax enforcement, you know, we're always going to do that. Fraud, it's always tax enforcement, or my favorite German word, fraud and abuse. We're going to pay, we're going to save money by cracking down on fraud and abuse. So it will add $367 billion to the deficit between 22 and, 20 and 31, <laughs> probably more. In a separate analysis, the CBO estimated that the Build Back Better's additional IRS funding would generate an additional $207 billion precisely in revenue over the same time period, which means CBO is correct. 
legislation would ultimately add about $160 billion to the deficit over 10 years. A, which blows the hole in the it pays for itself, the cost is zero. And B, I don't believe that that's an accurate assessment at all because these things just mushroom and grow and become you know, immense wads of spending and programs rolling down the hill that just accumulate more. Will this mean anything to anybody? Democrats no. voted for it with one person saying no. nay, and uh, I got the feeling that this probably isn't going to be the election issues that people think because it's so vague and gassy and huge and out there. Nobody knows exactly what it means, and it won't affect them, but they will know about the inflation. They will know about that, and there's a fighting chance that the BBB will contribute to that. Gentlemen? Uh, the CBO scoring, everybody knew that Biden saying that the thing would cost zero was I don't want to say a lie because everybody says everything is a lie, but it was nonsense on stilts. We'll put it that way. The House passed this. The House was going to pass this. All Nancy Pelosi cares about is cutting this deal, that deal, the other deal to go ahead and get this thing passed. Because we now know, we don't know, it's still a year ahead, but it now looks very likely that the Democrats will lose control of the House a year from now. This is just not serious. This is not governance. This is a kind of kabuki theater for the progressive left to mollify the activists and the donors in the Democratic Party. The Senate will not permit this thing to go through. Joe Manchin's approval ratings in West Virginia are now in the high 60s. (laughs) Joe Biden's approval ratings in West Virginia are now in the low 30s. Joe Manchin gets to tell the Senate what he's going to do. Joe Biden doesn't, doesn't and, and Chuck Schumer do not get to tell Joe Manchin what he's going to do. Um, this is all kabuki. This is not a great nation governing itself in a serious way. That's my two cents. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. I mean, I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't really looked up Joe Manchin's poll numbers just as of, you know, the last week. But <laughs> I remember when I did... Uh, I, I did some MSNBC show a few weeks ago, and I, I, I made the appalling comment that, like, Joe Manchin is a popular, a popularly elected senator from West Virginia, which if, if, he, if they decided to replace Joe Manchin, they would not replace him with a more progressive Democrat. Correct. Correct. And a look on, like, um, I forget who, uh, on, um, who, who, who is it? Like, uh, Sally Cohn. The look on Sally Cohn's face was, like, as if I had just... I mean, I had, I had, I, I don't know what I had done. I had done something horrible. I had said something horrible and, and incomprehensible to her. Um, but it's true. Like Joe Manchin is a very, very popular. And, and by the way, Joe Manchin is the way out for Democrats. Be more like Joe Manchin. Correct. Be more like Joe, and the sky's the limit. But they absolutely refuse to do. What, what, what I like about this, the, the, the complete lack of interest in what the, the CBO scoring says, is that it reveals the essential truth, which is that only Republicans think that there's a deficit or a debt. Democrats don't think there is one. It's just a, it's an accounting it's really just an accounting error. They, the Democrats believe that the federal government has 100% claim on 100% of your assets. Correct. If, if that's the case, then really, what is 
What's a trillion? What's two trillion? What five? They can make more. Modern monetary yeah. theory. They can just. But they don't have to, because they, they could just raise taxes. They, the Democrats want to raise taxes. They want to raise taxes on you and me and everybody mm -hmm. and the rich first, mm -hmm. uh, for the first week, and then everybody else. That's what they want to do, and they just don't. They just aren't driven by any sense of like of the nation's finances going into the ditch because they know that there's a parachute. The parachute is your paycheck. One of the biggest disconnects on this has been the inflation debate. Several mm -hmm. uh, commentators have, co have covered themselves with all sorts of wonderful rants of glory by saying it's that it's a it's not a big deal. I mean, a, a friend of mine in the media was tweeting the other day. You know, gas ticks up a little bit. What big deal? Milk tilts, you know, ticks up. You know, I got to buy milk anyway. So what's 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 the big deal? Which is kind of out of touch. But the other thing is that they're saying that this is all being that the panic over inflation is being fed to us by the media, which I love this. You know, that right wing media with its clickbait machine is out there telling everybody that there's this bugaboo of inflation that they shouldn't worry about, that it's their attempt to get readers. I tend to think that New York Times doing stories on inflation might be because the New York Times is noticing that it's there or that people are right. caring and that it might hurt the Democrats. After months of denying that inflation was taking place, the new line is, it's up to somebody else's fault. Yeah, 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 it's taking place, but it's not that bad, and somebody else's fault. And it's really, also good. You, you hear them say, it's good for us, actually. It's, good. it's kind of right. good for us. Then, then wages go up, which I actually, I at the MSNBC or Salon or Slate or Commentary or Dysentery or something like that, did that piece. It's great because wages will go up. How well, stupid do you have to be to not <laughs> see the other portion of that argument? I think the New York Times thinks things like, uh, I don't know why people are complaining. Um, uh, they, they're complaining about inflation, but Americans sure are spending more. Yeah. Like, those, those things are connected. I mean, I, right. I, there, I right. did, does raise a question, and I know we have a guest here, and I would actually like to talk to the guest about this, which is that the, the, the argument is somehow that you – people in the media, people, partisans of both sides really, make an argument that if you, if you notice something that exists and you have experienced it and then you mention that you've experienced it, you are contributing to the problem. That a problem right. can be disappeared simply right. by not being talked about, right. and that I find to be a very, very, very strange place for. Uh, yeah. So well, for what, what I want is the, the the gas station or the grocery store equivalent of the forever stamp. I want you know the the, the, the post office <laughs> yeah. said you buy it now and it'll be good no matter how often right. they, they raise the price. I want forever stamps for milk and I want forever stamps for gasoline and then we'll be fine. Speaking of stamps, by the way, yeah, you're probably thinking if I want those forever stamps, I got to go to the post office. Oh, I got to make another trip to the post office. Oh, the hectic holiday shopping traffic. Why do I do this? You don't have to. You can save time. You can save money with stamps. Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print labels, and access exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS shipments all year long. It just makes sense, especially if your business sends more mail and packages during the holidays. You got cards going out? Yeah. Whether you're selling online or running an office as a side hustle, Stamps.com can save you so much time and money and stress during the holidays. Access all of the post office and UPS shipping services you need without taking the trip. And you get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like 40% off USPS rates and up to 76% off UPS. And if you spend more than a few minutes a week dealing with mailing and shipping, Stamps.com is a lifesaver. You'll save so much time and money, no wonder why you didn't start sooner. Start now. Save time and money this holiday season with Stamps.com. Sign up with the promo code, you ready? Ricochet for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, free. who's offering you that free postage and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts. 
Just go to stamps.com and click on the microphone at the top of the page and enter the code RICOCHET. And we thank stamps.com for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. You got cards to go out. Remember, when you didn't have the stamps, forget about it. Nevermore. Stamps.com. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Ross Douthat, contributing editor, movie critic for National Review, columnist for that uh, old gray lady, the New York Times, where he's the in-house conservative. I know how that feels walking around the office halls. He's written half a dozen books, including Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream, The Decadent Society. Sound familiar? How we became victims of our own success. And he's just released The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. Check out the link in the description at ricochet.com to get your copy. And we'll talk about that for just a second. But first of all, welcome back, Ross. It's great to be back, gentlemen. Thanks for so, having me. So many pieces you've done um, recently that each of which could spend an hour of discussion. You mentioned we were talking about this us before you got here. New universities, why we need them. Some people say it's ridiculous. You should inhabit the institutions that exist and attempt to change them. Other people say no, some sort of parallel structure is necessary in order to provide a place for American ideals to flourish. What is the argument for it and what justifications and skepticisms you might have? I mean, I think the argument for it is even simpler than a sort of grand statement about, you know, needing a place for principles to flourish. The United States is supposed to be a dynamic society. Obviously, I wrote a book calling us a decadent society, so I don't think we necessarily are, but well, if we, we dynamically decadent. If we but right, if we imagine ourselves as a dynamic society, wouldn't you imagine new universities popping up occasionally from time to time? I mean, if you look at the you know, the the U.S. News and World Report college rankings, it is the case that occasionally a school can sort of reinvent itself and vault its way up those rankings. Um, but basically, you know, the U.S. News, the, those rankings are as if the, you know, top companies on the New York Stock Exchange were all the same ones that they were in 1947. And if that were the case, you would say that something had gone wrong. Some kind of stagnation had set in. Ross, Peter here. Rob is champing at the bit to get in and talk about your book. And so I'm going to hand it over to Rob in one second. But you were a graduate of Harvard who wrote a book about the Harvard experience. Nothing live, more Harvardian. You live, you live in New Haven, the home of Yale University. The argument, I can't quote them, but this is a close paraphrase of what half a dozen members of the new board of advisors for the University of Austin said. Neil Ferguson makes this point very explicitly. The, the great universities are lost and, critical point, unreformable. The only hope is to found new institutions. Does that make sense to you? Does that seem right that Harvard and Yale and other great elite institutions are, A, lost to wokeness, lost to the old task of transmitting the glories of Western civilization and so rich, vast endowments, and so tightly, uh, so incestuous because of the self-selection of faculty that they're unreformable. I would say that they're probably unreformable without some kind of serious competition. So I don't think any institution okay. is lost in some, you know, absolute 200 years will go by and nothing will change kind of sense. But being around these institutions, they're certainly lost 
for the moment to anything that we would call conservatism. The battle in these universities is between a technocratic liberalism that wants to educate consultants and a progressive ideology that wants to educate activists. And um, conservatives like ourselves can sort of choose our side in that fight, and maybe we hope that the technocratic side, the technocratic liberals have more room to have the occasional conservative faculty member, but basically that dynamic is not going to change without some kind of larger change, and I think the only plausible way to get that larger change is to have either private new institutions, or I, I think this is one of my you know least popular opinions in certain ways, but I think the federal government under Republican oh, Rob, stewardship stop, stop, Rob. should consider Rob. setting up <laughs> national, national, national universities. Oh, no. Let Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer each pick 60 faculty members. I think it's a terrific idea, but <laughs> well, it's a... It's um, a minority well, I, view. Uh, Ross, the book is terrific. I want to get to it because uh, uh, I, I have some I, I have some little tributaries I want to take. But before I do, can I just ask this question about this very topic? Everybody I know who teaches college has been saying the same thing for 20 years, which is that college is essentially remedial because high school in America, high school education is pretty much gone. And so we seem to be arguing over how to ice the cake when there's no cake. Um wouldn't it be a better use of our time and our treasure and our and our urgency instead of trying to figure out how to like make a Yale that's not irritating? How to make a high school that teaches fundamental things that you need to know to to earn a living and to flourish in 2021 and 2100, uh, and then let the let colleges be what colleges are. I mean, it seems to me that the argument isn't to come up with one more way to take poorly prepared students and educate them in a different pattern, but instead to educate high school students w well enough with enough rigor, with, which we used to do, yes. so that um, they arrive in college not quite so ready to get brainwashed. So, yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, in fact, um, I think, you know, there there are a lot of ways in which I think High school is sort of underrated as a zone of people's adult development, and college is overrated. Like if you look at sort of when do when do kids who are religious and secularized actually stop going to church? It's not when they go off to you know the liberal atheist flesh pots of academia. It's usually when they're in high school. Sometimes after they get confirmed, and then they just sort of drift away from religion there. Um, so yeah, there there are a lot of ways in which. I think cultural conservatives should be focused on building better high schools, I guess. But I, I do also think that that is a place where conservatives have done some work, have, have, you know, if you look around the country right now, there are not just sort of lots of existing private schools, but lots of startups and lots yeah. of energy around that area. So I, I, I guess if you said high school or college, choose one, I would say probably choose high school. But... I don't think you have to choose one, and I think actually people can learn something from the successes of, you know, classical classical schools and other kinds of right. startups that applies to having, you know, a few new colleges as well. But, but speaking so of decadent, what, speaking of decadent, speaking of decadent, when Rob, we've, we've got a billion right. applause. You know, yeah, we'll you, know you know you're in trouble. Uh, and, and believe me, I know what I'm talking about when I talk about decadence. Um, <laughs> We have a billionaire going to space. Uh, 100 years ago, whatever it was, 150 years ago, Andrew Carnegie built libraries. 
how, how much would it cost these billionaires to build five interesting, thoughtful, rigorous high schools as model schools around the country? Pick a place. Pick a, place, a rural place, an urban place, an urban blighted place. Uh, pick, a, pick, you know, five different places and, and, and actually have high school. If, if, if I read that in the New York Times, I'd be cheering. Yes. Um, rather than feeling a little queasy, like, uh, it's like somebody's just invented a new, a new app, which is what I, was my initial response to the University of Austin. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, there, there are billionaires who, in, I mean, billionaires do invest a lot in high school education. And a lot of the charter schools, the good charter yeah. schools that you see, um, are funded directly or indirectly by, um, by new money in certain ways. So, again, some of that already happens. Uh, but I agree. I think there is a unfortunate bias in the most innovative zone of money making of the last 20 or 30 years, Silicon Valley, toward the idea that, you know, we're all going to live in Zuckerberg's metaverse. And so it's sort of antiquated to invest in actual brick and mortar institutions anymore. And when the reality is that even in a world where we figure out how to do digital education, online education better than we have right now, you still there's still no substitute for the actual places that people go to school. And I think it would be a better world if, you know, everyone from from Bill Gates to Elon Musk, you know, who would all have very different ideas about right. how to spend on education said, you know, I want to have the Musk schools around the country. I, I think that would be high school, college, both. I think that would be a better use of their money than some of the philanthropic pursuits that uh, that they follow. That would be grand. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg poured millions of dollars into a school system. I can't remember exactly which one. In New Jersey, yep. New Jersey, right. Utter failure. Complete failures. Like, they've just the, the money soaked into it like water into a parched ground. And it would be great if all these guys did set up parallel institutions, but in order to make this work, the reason that Zuckerberg did that was because that's the holy model. That's the model that we're supposed to admire and revere, public education. Right. Because we have ideas about it that go back 100, 150 years. When actually the, tr the only thing that will save us is completely dismantling and breaking up and eliminating the public school system so that people have to go, the money follows the students, and people have to go somewhere. But the uphill struggle, getting into the hearts and minds of people, of saying that public education is actually the impediment, and with the money of the school teachers union, that seems like a, <laughs> a hard fight that's almost impossible, but worth trying anyway. Well, it varies from state to state and area to area, too, right? Like, I'm in the Northeast where it is extremely hard to set up a charter school. It's a lot easier to set up a charter school in Arizona and sort of to do something innovative that is still within, you know, using public money and within the public system. So, in part, sort of what you're trying to do depends on where you are. But I, I don't think you have to imagine it as an all-or-nothing an all or nothing proposition. In areas where the public bureaucracy is more flexible, you can hope to innovate within the public system. In areas where it's not, yeah, your only hope is sort of sort of outsider alternatives. And figuring out how to make them cheap in certain ways, and again, this is true of universities too, right? In a, in a world where the bloat of administration and bureaucracy um, is such a huge part of, you know, what sort of overtaken, overtaken education. Figuring out a model. What's the model for a high school that's a private high school that costs, you know, what a Catholic school costs to send, to send your kids to instead of what 
um, you know, early or Riverside or, or Harvard Westlake costs that I'm trying to be by in my choices of schools. Growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, we had a principal. We did not have an assistant principal. We had a secretary who answered the phones, and then occasionally we had a nurse. That was the extent of the administrative over, you know, layer over the school. A couple more in the home office, of course. But you're right, getting rid of that bloat is what's necessary, but the hardest job is in the cities where it seems to be most needed, to state the suddenly obvious. Anyway, Rob, you are... Uh, you well, I, I wanted to turn a little bit to the to the book, because I, I, the book is sort of fascinating. Uh, because uh, we trip. told Ross we discussed uh, so, yeah. We're trying to sell um, this thing. You just right. tell people to buy it and don't tell them what's in it, then. Well, you know, right, that, right. There's well, always I'll, that, that, that well, approach. Well, there is, there, is there, there is definitely a marketing problem with this book, which we'll get to. The book is called The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. And spoiler alert, it's not called A Memor- Memoir of Illness and Recovery. Um so you uh, you you move with your family to um, New England, and and then and then something first happens. Yes, the first mistake was having the conservative right. pundits' fantasy of <laughs> buying a rural yeah. retreat, raising chickens, and arming yourself. You know, in in preparation for for the apocalypse. Um, right. And we, we did that, basically. We bought a farmhouse in Connecticut, a 1790s farmhouse with barns and brick walls and Uh-oh. all the trimmings. Uh, and I was immediately punished for it by getting incredibly sick with a sickness that it happened probably, I probably got infected literally during the home inspection by uh, the delightful deer tick that crawls through the Connecticut pasture land. Uh, but right. we were still in Washington, D.C. at first, and so it took months before I saw a doctor who knew anything about the illness that I actually had, which is Lyme disease, the, the illness of the northeastern and midwestern United States, although there are a lot of cases actually now in California as yes, right. expand, expand their years. habitats. Mm. And, and uh, so it was – but was it diagnosed as Lyme? It was diagnosed as Lyme once we got to Connecticut. So for three or four months in D.C., it was diagnosed as it's all in your head. You're under a lot of stress. You're imagining your phantom heart attacks, weight, 40 pounds of weight loss, and total insomnia and body pain. That was phase one. And that, that you write about that, and I think that's a really important part of the book, this kind of weird diploma, the diplomacy of a doctor telling you after you're describing pain, telling you that it's not pain. Yes, gently, very gently, telling right. you that telling you that you do not have a physical illness, as I was told by many, many people in in D.C. who did not have the experience that doctors in the Northeast have with the reality that blood tests for Lyme disease are not very good, and symptomology is extremely weird, um, and yeah, so yeah, so it took. It took going to Connecticut to be told that I should be taking antibiotics yeah. rather than seeing a psychiatrist. I, 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 my, my brother and his family uh, lived there, lived right pretty close to you, I think, um, uh, uh, for most of the year, part of the year. And my brother is obsessed with Lyme disease. I mean, he, the children, he checks them for ticks. Yes. And he's obsessed with it. It's like, but he's also diagnosed himself with it. Fast enough that he got the antibiotics he needed. Yep. And he diagnosed a friend of my mom's with it in Maryland on the phone. Now, my brother, I should know, should note in passing, is not only not a doctor. I mean, he's not even 
That's not even you. He's not even me. He couldn't even put on a band-aid. He's not my, – my brother will – I will buy this book for my brother. He will not read it, even though it is a topic of interest to him. He'll look at it and go, oh, I'm going to read that, and it won't happen. So that's, that's – Well, that's let's, the, let's put that to the test. Why don't you send him <laughs> no. 100, 100 <laughs> copies? Oh, well, there you <laughs> go. He just read one. Put them in every, every room. That's right. Um, Bulk but purchases. But, but I mean is that, what I mean is that it, it was it's the failure identifying the failure of, of – of uh, doctor's arrogance? Is it the fact that we don't have the right di diagnostic tests for this? Or is it that there is still, I mean, there well, are there's a fundamental, still So there's a fundamental mystery, or well, right. what there is is a fundamental controversy, right? So there's sort of the mystery of diagnosis, where doctors who haven't seen this disease uh, and don't know how complex and strange it can be don't think of it as, as a likely thing. That's, that's phase one. But then in places like Connecticut, where you see tons of cases, it's not that hard to get a Lyme diagnosis. It's just that if you have one and don't get better quickly, then the official medical response is, there's nothing we can do for you. We've already right. given you four weeks of antibiotics. You're on your own. Right. And then you either have to accept that, which in my case would have accepted, uh, you know, living with crippling pain for the rest of my adult life, which I preferred not to do, or you can go to the outsider doctors right. who say, who are real, this is not, you know, sort of woo-woo new age people, these are, you know, Ivy League educated doctors, but they are outside the official conventional right. wisdom, and they say, no, we will, if you still have symptoms, we will continue treating you, and we think this disease is really hard to get rid of for a lot of people, and we will treat you with multiple antibiotics, combinations of antibiotics, other other stranger things sometimes. And that's what I did. Right. Uh, that's so the story is partially about that. It's about the fringes of medicine and the strange characters you meet along the way. And it's about in effect this the part of it that where I'm, you know, sort of with I'm with your brother, right? Is that you know, you end up when you Certainly when you live with this yourself, but even living, I think, in the landscape of Lyme disease, you have to become your own expert on it because it's such right. a fraud. You have to develop you have to develop your own opinions because no one has there's no certainty about the disease. The outsider doctors, right. And it's interesting how what's outside medicine today becomes mainstream twenty years down the road. Nobody I can remember twenty five years ago was talking about gut microbiomes, but here we are. I mean, the information, the knowledge, what we take for granted, what we believe, what we doubt, it's always changing. And we know now, for example, there's much more to nutrition than just calories. They used to just count calories. Well, your diet plays a huge role in many things, including, crucially, your microbiome, which in turn impacts your mental and your physical well-being. Science is clear. A healthy gut microbiome, the good bacteria that help our bodies process food, is key to a healthy lifestyle. But now we're learning that you, there's a connection between your gut microbiome health and type 2 diabetes. Our sponsor, Pendulum Glucose Control, is the first and only medical probiotic that's designed to manage A1C and blood glucose levels throughout the health of your microbiome. So you're asking, uh, what is my gut microbiome? Well, it's the vast array of microorganisms that help you digest your food. And while they may be small, these guys are darned important. And with Pendulum, they can get the help they need to help you manage your type 2 diabetes. Over time, people with type 2 diabetes lose their gut bacteria that help digest fiber and manage our blood glucose levels. Diet and exercise is still important. But if you struggle to maintain and manage your levels with diet and exercise alone, your gut microbiome might need a little bit more help and attention. Pendulum Glucose Control helps fill in the gaps. With Pendulum, 
You can feel in control of your levels, not the other way around. So take control of your glucose levels today. Try Pendulum Glucose Control for 90 days. If you're not satisfied with your levels, you get your money back. Visit PendulumLife.com to find out more. And use the promo code RICOCHET for 20% off your first bottle of the membership. That's P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M-L-I-F-E.com. Promo code RICOCHET. And we thank Pendulum for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Ross Douthat is our guest. The book is The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. Ross, you just described finding your way to the fringes of medicine. And you write in the book, I'll paraphrase this badly, but I'm just asking you to explain it. You paraphrase it. it, In some basic way, this all taught you a life lesson. You're much more open to fringes and crazy people and the unorthodox and the experimental in all kinds of ways than you were before you got sick. Yes, I think so. And, you know, to be fair, I was already a conservative at a liberal newspaper and a you know, believing Christian in a secular environment. So someone could say, well, you are already open to strange ideas, right? And this only pushed you further. But, but yeah, this is an inevitable result of, I think, and it happens to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It doesn't just happen with the particular chronic illness that I had. But, you know, medical science is the solid floor that our whole society walks around on. And when you have an experience, an illness, something happens and the medical system can't help you, won't help you, seems to be ignoring things that will help you, that automatically changes you know, just sort of the level of credibility and authority that you ascribe to that system. And then the second stage is, you know, when you're trying to get better on your own, and I had good doctors helping me in the end, and they played a key role, but you also just have to sort of do things and try things yourself. You know, you find things that are even further out on the fringe that, you know, seem like seem like they shouldn't possibly work or have any effect. Um, Things that if you read about, you would say, well, that's got to be, you know, quack, quack medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And then you try them and you get strong results. They help you, they very clearly help you get better in a way that, you know, you you don't have a personal double-blind controlled trial paper to offer on the subject. But when you're sick, you have to be an empiricist about your own body. And, yeah, and then that kind of experience means, you know, that on any given issue, on any given issue, you end up ascribing certainly more understanding to people who end up with fringe ideas and a little more credence to arguments that you would have written off. But then the trick is that, the challenge is that you want to be able to have those experiences and become more open-minded without falling off the cliff into total paranoia, right? So I, I like to tell people that I'm the guy who has a frequency machine in my attic that sends, you know, sound waves through my flesh to try and kill bacteria. But I also got two shots of the Pfizer vaccine as soon as it became available. So that's that's how I think about striking striking the balance between the things the fringe might reveal. But, right. you know, there are still things, there are really important things that the medical establishment is, is right about. That's well, really crazy. That's, that sounds nuts. 
He's like, I, I keep so my getting frequency. the Pfizer vaccine or having the frequency <laughs> right, machine. Right, right. No, I have the frequency <laughs> machine. I have the frequency machine in my basement. You've got it in right, the attic. Yeah, you can't I, have it in your attic. Well, this I, is I, right. I don't, this I don't is know what you're the, talking about. The, I mean, people do though. I mean, you again. There's also an East Coast West Coast thing here where the people I've talked to about some of the weird stuff I've tried who are from California yeah. are much more likely to say, "Oh, I, I do have a frequency machine. I used it to treat my migraines, you know, six months ago." Whereas here on the East Coast, people raise their eyebrow at you and murmur something understanding and change the subject. I, I have found the same thing. I, I found it when, when I, um, depending on which doctor I was talking to, my doctor that I would just go to in LA or the one in New York, when I, but when I suffer from vertigo in the summer and I said, you know, do you think that, uh, do you think that uh, uh, psychedelics would help me here? And then the, the, the LA doctor's like, I don't think here, probably not. Uh, and the, the New York doctor's like, I don't, uh, that's not my, I don't want to, that's not my area. This could be very uncomfortable. Um, to be fair, Rob asked that question when he had an ingrown toenail. I asked that question for I There's never anything that psychedelics won't help with in some I, way. I definitely agree with that. Including uh, so column I, writing. I, I Believe me, I agree with that too. So my, my, I guess my question is, what, what do you attribute that reluctance? I mean, how, why is it so hard? For your doctor, a doctor, to say to you, "Look, here's what they, here's what the book says to do, and here's all we can do." However, I've read this, 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 and this, and it suggests. Why is it so? Why do you have to go to a, find some find some doctor somehow through some chain of connections who will be more entrepreneurial? We'll say, put a word to, to use a word, entrepreneurial, or more aggressive, or more. Um, loose about attacking your pain what is it about the medical profession is it specifically the medical profession that has a hard time saying here's something i'm not sure about that you might try yeah i mean i think i think the way we've set up the system is designed to avoid that at all costs right and you know for a lot of a lot of sound reasons. It's, you know, first, there's first do no harm, right? The idea that you shouldn't send someone off to try a treatment if you're not sure what it will do. Um, there is the, you know, the desire for a certain kind of evidentiary certainty that goes right. into how, how the FDA approves drugs, right? Like all of these, all of our systems are built up, they're built up to protect people against the consequences of the, the dangers in experimentation, um, but as a result, they end up limiting the benefits of experimentation, right? right? right. And that's, but then there's also a way in which I think doctors, doctors are trained to distrust their patients to a certain extent, I think. That's an important part of medical culture, that you can trust scans and blood work but you can't trust a person's testimony about their own symptoms that much. Right. Um, right. And that, I think, again, it exists for a reason. People are unreliable in some ways, but once you have this kind of chronic illness, and I, I didn't understand this until I had one, had right. one, right? But it really is the case that there are things that only the patient can understand about what's going on, and there are things that only the patient can actually tell you and have access to and there has to be some kind of mm-hmm. some kind of basic trust that talking to the patient is a crucial part of diagnosis even if it's not the only thing you rely on it, it, it's a terrific book um, uh, but when I was reading it I couldn't separate it from COVID mm. and from the experience of COVID and especially at this particular area I couldn't separate it from the 
my sense that the, the, the medical community or the medical establishment uh, was very uncomfortable telling the nation of patients and face the truth, which is there's a lot we don't know. Ivermectin may work. Hydroxychloroquine may work. Masks, new, yeah, maybe not. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Um, keep the old people inside. Like there, there, there was some, there was some unwillingness on their part. It's almost, it's a form of humility, isn't it? That that, that was was lacking. Yes, um, I, I think. I mean, it's there was certainly certainly for the first three to six months of COVID, we knew so little, and yet there is such, I think pressure on and demand for yeah. from a certain kind of person authoritative medical statements that you've right. got this absurd dynamic of people saying trust the science don't wear a mask oh oh wait no trust the science do wear a mask right. trust the science covid it's not airborne wear no two masks. it is right. it is airborne wear two masks right and yeah i think part of it is that there's this desire i think a totally legitimate desire among scientists to protect their authority on sort of core questions, right? Like right. the core achievements of modern medicine, there are people who doubt them and reject them and they shouldn't. And, you know, so you have to protect that authority, but then that leads to trying to counterproductively protect the same authority into debates where it just isn't appropriate. So, so they, you know, you say, we know hydroxychloroquine doesn't work with the same level of intensity you say we know vaccines work when in fact we don't know much about it. it's a, you know it was a novel a novel disease who knew you know who knows whether hydroxychloroquine worked you know um and, and well, that's, one that's step, I think, one, yeah. One step further, the CDC has a budget of tens of billions of dollars. Um, the NIH has a budget of tens of billions of dollars. They were in a position to run studies right away to find out about ivermectin and hydrochloroquine. And there was a willfulness there, not just a lack of humility, but a kind of willfulness do what you're going. Do what we tell you to do. And by the way, these these crazy ideas are crazy ideas, and we're not even going to investigate them. We still don't, as, as Dr. Bhattacharya tells us, we still don't have good, reliable studies on whether masks work, the circumstances under which they do work, the kinds of masks that do work. These agencies have could. We're almost two years into this. I'm, in other words, you're being, as you always are, Ross, dispassionate and analytical and underlying it all, a great generosity toward all parties involved. And I'm saying, damn it! No, look, I don't, I don't feel any generosity towards the medical establishment. I'm just aware that I've written a book that, you know, includes me having a chiropractor put magnets on my body. So I'm, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to, you know, acknowledge while telling the story um, that, you know, the stuff that's right. out, out stuff outside of CDC and FDA world can get, it really can get crazy in a hurry. And I did the crazy stuff, I know. But no, I'm not, I'm not carrying water for these institutions. They failed completely in the first six months of the pandemic, and they failed in more moderate ways ever since. And the reality is that like the best, some of the best research during the pandemic has been done by this thing called SAS grants that people at George Mason University, Tyler Cowen was involved with it, set up, where the whole idea was to bypass the way that the public health bureaucracy conducts studies and do things super quickly. 
Right. Um, so, and, uh, you know, it, they did one on they did one on ivermectin that seemed to show it didn't do a lot, but then they found another drug that seemed that's one of the drugs that they think might help, and that's no look. There's this is the you know the the decadent society to plug my prior book is nowhere right. more evident than in the bureaucratic structures of American Mark, may medicine. I, may I? We're, we're I mean this is a podcast. Time is sort of short, but I'd like to introduce a, a one new gigantic topic. And set up your next book. I don't know whether you know. I don't know what it is, so I'm really glad I came on the show. You're about to find out. You're about to find out. And what I have in mind here is two pieces of information. One is that you and I have made the same bet about life. You have four kids, as I recall. Yep. And I have five. And your colleague at the New York Times, and my friend all the way back from the 1980s, David Brooks, wrote a big think piece. I'm quoting it. Here's the title. The nuclear family was a mistake. And here's the subhead. The family structure we've held up as the cultural ideal for the past half century, seems to me it goes back millennia, but at least the past half century, has been a catastrophe for many. It's time to figure out better ways to live together. Okay. You may now start writing the book proposal out loud for us. The defense of the nuclear family. I think so. Do you want me to say something nuanced about my colleague, who, because I'm obliged no, to, no, and say, no. and say that I think part no. of David Bush received much too much nuanced treatment as it too is. Too much nuanced. All right, all right. Um, I'll just, I'll just say that I think there were some good ideas in that piece, uh, but maybe that, maybe that is, maybe that is the next book. I think definitely the, the challenge, the challenge is we, we live in a society where. You know, because of divorce rates, because of out-of-wedlock birth rates, and so on, there's there's a huge population for whom the original, the sort of 1952 vision of the nuclear family is already out of reach, and so you you do need social models that take that into account. But with that being said, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's absolutely no question that the great tragedy, the accelerating tragedy of the last couple of decades in, in American life is, in certain ways, it's not what conservatives feared once, that it would be just sort of, you know, total social chaos and marriages falling apart every week and every, every child born out of wedlock. It's just, a, it's a retreat from all of it. It's a retreat from marriage. It's a retreat from children. It's a retreat even from sex and dating itself. Um, and maybe that's maybe there's a whole book in there, but whether there is or not, for sure, in your hands, for sure. Here, so here's the prologue. I'll, I'm just helping you to get the, the ideas fleshed out right nice and early here, Ross. So, and here's your prompt: You and your wife have four kids. Why? As your wife must surely have heard, if she's at all had experiences like my wife in the grocery store, when she's gone to the grocery grocery store with one or two of her children, people, complete strangers, feel perfectly entitled to come up and say, don't you know how to prevent that? And yet you have four. Why? Because there's, with, if you don't have, if you aren't Mother Teresa, and you aren't either called to or capable of a life of perfect self-giving, 
there's no better way to force yourself into a certain kind of self-giving than to surround yourself with utterly dependent creatures who make incredible demands on you day and night. Dude, first print run, right. 100,000 copies. 100,000 copies. And 100, also, you get to, also you get to listen to the soundtrack to Les Mis 147 times in the minivan, as we have done over the past six months, to the point where I'm now reading the Victor Hugo novel, uh, which is rather slow going, but fascinating. I, slow going. I, yeah. I can still sing Barbie, Princess, and Popper themes from start to finish from the game, from the video, and that's been 15 years. Yeah, but what you've described, Ross, though, is difficult. It's hard. And a lot of the things that we are rejecting today, we don't like them because they're hard. They're tough, and it's easier not to get married. It's easier not to date. It's easier not to have sex and just plug on something you get in your computer. It's easy. And when the metaverse comes along, people are going to be able to have the ideal for some guys. You'll be able to have a spouse in one virtual world, and you'll have another spouse in another. And you may find them tangentially, if in an ephemeral sense, sort of emotionally supportive, enough to get you by, but it's easy. It's, 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 it's easy. Right. Well, in, in that sense, the book might be not just the case for the family, but just the case for reality, for which is, I think, going to become more and more important the more that we live inside, inside that Mark Zuckerbergian paradise. Paradise. Did you see the commercial where they're looking at a Rousseau painting and it yeah, comes to life? It's terrifying. It's, it's creepy, creepy, creepy it's stuff. Absolutely. Well, the, the idea that anyone walks to an art museum, first of all, and looks uh-huh. at a painting and thinks, wouldn't it be great if it came to life in a vaguely computer-generated way? And, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's just sort of no, it's I mean, an insane testament to how a certain kind of personality thinks about what is good right. in the world. You see a Fragonard, you don't necessarily want to go into that world and hop on the swing and go up and down, first of all, because they probably smell from bad body odor, and secondly, there's the, you know, people marching towards the ballet at the very moment to put your hands on spikes. But it's more—it's just the contemplation of the object and what it represents and the technique and the rest of it, the idea that somehow we're going to improve on art by letting you go into it and talk to the people in there is the sort of thing that only a computer nerd geek with no taste from Silicon Valley could possibly come up with. Rod had one small question before we let you go. Oh, yeah, I was really more question about, about your faith. Another small topic. Another small topic. 30 seconds or less, yes. Did you, yes, did you, right, did you, um, I mean, you write about it in the book, uh, but I'm, I'm interested in that, in, 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 in the way prayer uh, can be an active form of healing. That, you know, the, it, the church that I go to in Manhattan the, when we, I just learned this because this, the rector, she's been there 25 years. Um, and one of the first things she introduced in on the corner of 71st and Madison uh, was a healing prayer. The idea that if you were sick or, or, or in grief or whatever, that you could come and, and your fellow parishioners would pray with you. Uh, and there were some amazing people telling us after the, the party, after her the celebration, that, that how that had affected them. And they all did it with a kind of a magnets on my body, kind of rueful. I have a frequency machine in my yep. attic. Yep. That's what I, I just I tell. I don't have no, a question. You, the, and you're, the, you're, the, and you're yes. right in. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. I mean, I I think there's sort of an idea about prayer and probably meditation too, right? That, you know, you sort of, you, you do a regression analysis and you find that 
you know, people who pray frequently have, you know, slightly better vibes. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, well, feel, and, they measure but when the you're really, but they, when you're they really measure sick, those. right. You know, I, I think I'm sure that that's real. But when you're really sick, you want some reaction. You know, you're you're looking for something. Right. You're looking for something different. Um, and my experience was basically that for the first three or four years that I was sick, I prayed not in any kind of like, you know, monks crystalline right. perfection, but in this sort of desperate begging, begging God for help style, and got very little. And then at a at, at a certain point, uh, actually after going to confession, I asked for help and got, you know, some what I would describe as strange physical reactions in my body. And not sort of like a magic, you know, finger on your head, you're healed kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. More like sort of a, a jolt, a buzz. Um, Did that make you uncomfortable when that happened? It, it, well, it, made, it made me laugh, actually. I mean, when you really? have these sort of outre experiences, so yeah. in this case, I like ended up like on the stairs going up to the choir loft, like sort of jerking and rubbing my body, which was something that I would do when I took strong doses of antibiotics. So this was like mm -hmm. the divine version of taking, taking doxycycline. But with that, as with the strange magnets and various things, you, you get an appreciation for the, just a heightened appreciation for the total strangeness of human existence. And, and, you know, this part isn't something that I could feel until I got somewhat better. At my worst, I didn't feel this. But when I started getting somewhat better, just sort of the human comedy element, right? right. Like the idea that here right. I am, Mr. New York Times, fancy pants columnist, and right. I'm lying on a table in, you know, a strip mall chiropractor getting magnetized. Or I'm lying on the floor of a church sort of right. flailing my arms. Like it's absurd. And, and that's... A crucial aspect of existence, I think, that, um, you know, gets lost a little bit, at, at least in yeah. the way we conduct our political debates. So maybe, uh, maybe, uh, maybe humility for the doctors, but also humility for the patients. Yes. Oh, absolute, absolute humility in the face of, in the face of deep and abiding strangeness, I would say. Ross, this may not hit you until later this weekend, but this very podcast has been of immense commercial importance to you. I've given you a book idea that's going to be a bestseller for sure, and Rob has just teased out the initial elements of a sitcom. <laughs> that that and and Rob's brother is going to receive 100 copies of the book. Well, exactly right. For which Rob is on next week. Well, uh, yeah, that, I will. No, I, I absolutely. It, it, is, it has been very significant indeed, and I'm very grateful for the chance <laughs> to be part of this. How columnists sometimes can look at these. You're finding yourself in a strip mall being magnetized, but the other hand, it's great material. I mean, I've wondered. Oh, that's. No, no, as a writer, this is the yeah. terrible thing, right? I mean, the yeah. absurd thing about being a writer, you go through these absolutely hellacious experiences, and there's always a corner of your brain that's like. Well, this when is I'm better, so this good. is amazing stuff. This is going to be when so better, good. I, yeah, I've, I've got three a week to write. So, I, you know, when I when anything lights up that little, when anything, you know, lights the pilot light and says, this is what next Wednesday's piece will be, I relax and, yeah, uh, yeah. and start to accumulate. Uh, Ross, and, you know, you've spent so much time with us today, and we're really grateful for all the time you spent. I can only conclude that you're avoiding getting to a column. I have I have seven out of 800 words in the column about uh, how bad things are or not for the Democrats. 
700, and you guys, have, you guys oh. have inspired me. Dude, the, for the final easy. hundred are going to be the most pellucid and brilliant words ever written. Do you just tack on two, two final paragraphs saying it's even worse than you supposed? Right. Well, that's <laughs> the second, the first half of the column is it could be better than you suppose, and the second half is uh, it could be worse. Oh, typical the, the theme of the second half is maybe only the Democrat, only Donald Trump can okay. save. The Democrats. You always have right. to be so even-handed and so well, fair. No, I get that. That's that's 800 words. That's 300 and 355 words per side, and then you have about 35 words. This is a classic, a classic column design, Peter. The, the, oh, on the right. one hand, on the other hand, I mean, without uh, that design, how would we live as columnists? It's it's <laughs> essential. Ross Douthat, you can find his columns in the New York Times. You can find his book in, well, I'd say B. Dalton's, but that would be, you know, some archaic reference to it, a civilization that no, yeah, wow. no longer exists, uh, on Amazon, of course. And uh, The Deep Places is its name. We recommend it. And, and get it now before all the, those hundred copies go to Rob's That's brother, right. and we can't, yeah, you gotta uh, hurry up. Can't, can't stir up any more. Ross, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We hope to see you to talk about the next book, where Peter Robinson will bitterly discuss the royalty situation and how he's been screwed <laughs> out of the Ross, to you and your large nuclear family, happy Thanksgiving. Happy and Thanksgiving. To you, and to you as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ross, you know, one of the things that uh, people who aren't ricochet members don't get if you if you are a member you can watch us do this which means you are able to go to zoom chinese spyware some say and uh, see things that happen while we're talking and while we were talking uh, the disembodied head of mrs robinson came in and said something to peter and i uh, presume that it was some sort of household emergency that uh, something went awry and i've since learned that peter robinson has a leaky Commode. Listen, uh, you know, we have enough problems. With we have yeah. enough problems with our physical infrastructure around the house. <laughs> it's your ephemeral, non-corporeal, digital stuff that breaks down too, as well. And break when it breaks down, you're in bad shape. So, what exactly am I talking about? Well, listen. Between your photos, your finances, your devices, and your connections, your world is more online than ever, right? You may have security systems in place for real life, a camera to see if anybody comes to the door. But what about your online life? Aura. A-U-R-A can sound the alarm if your digital presence is at risk. Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, your personal information, and your tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to frauds and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or someone tries to open up a bank account in your name, which happens if your social security number has been stolen, trust me. Aura, well, it's there to protect you. And it's easy to set up, too. All plans come with a million dollars in identity theft protection insurance to help you recover your stolen funds and experience U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security services that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues that may come up. Sounds great, doesn't it? Yes, it is. And for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners, which would be you, up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash Ricochet to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash Ricochet. And we thank Aura for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Well, gentlemen, before we go, it's Thanksgiving, so let's date this podcast completely so that it'll be absolutely unlistenable by next Friday. And... Uh, I've been looking online, and there are people who are still really tremulous about getting together with other people in a room. Yeah. What, with COVID, what with COVID raging, 
at all. There's somebody posted the question: Would you have, uh, would you have Thanksgiving dinner with an unvaccinated relative who had just had, who had just gotten over COVID? And the responses were amazing. I mean, just um, from the people who just completely wrap saran wrap around their entire face and body and never leave the house, the terror is still undiminished with these folks. Yeah, and as, as, as all Ricochet members who were uh, there for our, uh, our no, no Dumb Questions with Dr. J. Bhattacharya know, if they're not vaccinated and they want to come, why shouldn't they come? Because the vaccines don't work. Because the vaccines don't work. That's what I'm hearing now. We've now factored into it. Yeah, yeah, if you're vaccinated, still you can get it and you can spread it, so it doesn't really work. You need the booster. We are coming very close to the point, I think that Fauci said this, where being vaccinated will be defined by having your booster, which will elim- eliminate tens of millions of people from a vaccination status, right? Yeah, maybe. I, well, I guess what I mean is that the va- vaccines d- don't work if by work you mean do they form an impervious shell against this specific virus? Because as Correct. Dr. J, I'm Dr. J, who I channel now all the time, said, we're all going to get it more than once, maybe twice, maybe three times. That's the way it's going to be. It's not, it's not a pandemic. It's endemic. It's here. And so we get the vaccine, and we probably, we probably will get the booster. And, you know, in a year we'll be saying, well, the only problem was that when we rest, rushed this thing into your arms, we set, the, we set the amount too low. It was too weak. And we needed to, we're going to give you a big punch in the nose the next time. Um, and that's just how we have to live. I don't to think be fair, though, we time, they, they were selling this at 97% effectiveness. We were hearing high 90 numbers for these things. And so, yeah, but it was, of course, that's based on time, and there, was no, there were no time inputs available. Right. So, we, I mean, again, we, we, something happens, we make our assumptions, we go forward, and then yeah. we learn that our assumptions were incorrect, and we adjust what we're doing. I, I understand that things evolve, so I'm not, I'm not digging on them for saying that what they did about the vaccines at the time, and then later finding out that, that, that uh, immunity wanes. I get that, and, and fine, and I'm getting my booster next week. I don't think there's a big pharma scheme in order to make more money. Uh, I'm, <laughs> do you think have so? Perfect. Well, I mean, I'm, they're happy to do so, but do I, I think they that do I think that they came up with a booster that they knew was weaker than, or they came up with a shot that was weaker than they knew? Oh, I was oversold. Mwahaha, we'll make right, more money right, off right, the boosters. Right. No, and then we're going to get the pill, and you know, the pill uh, is is going to be an effective treatment, and it'll be endemic and no big deal. But again, there's a whole, there's 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 people who still have their identity wrapped up in being the good COVID citizen and evaluating the world precisely on those terms and being right. the dominant right. thing in their life. It's like they want. I I wish that there was a physical manifestation of this where you could actually see a, you know one of those big spiky Corona things floating in front of their face as they walk <laughs> along, just to indicate how absolutely obsessed they are with it. Well, is this a low thought? And I put it to the two of you because it maybe it's just me being my usual worm-like self. Oh, thoughts from high-heeled. <laughs> that um, the Democrats found that scaring people to death was very effective while Donald Trump was president. But they have a real incentive now to try to get people to think, at least, that this is all over and handled and dealt with by a year from now at the latest, because some large component of their sinking poll numbers is that people are still scared 
and upset that the Democrats haven't put COVID away somehow. You think so? I don't well, that's why I asked. Yeah. Do you think I so? It occurs I, I, to I, me. Let's put it I that way. I don't. I don't. The I political think incentives I, have swapped on them. I don't because there's not as much in the news, you know, the same tenor as there was when Trump was president. Because when Trump was president, anything bad that happened with COVID could be laid at his feet because he said you should drink bleach. Right? That whole nonsense. I mean, I, don't, I think his messaging was all over the road, but they lied about what he said. But at the same time, it was a handy stick with which they could beat him every single day. And a lot of times he leaned into it and asked for it. A whole different question. Now, it seems as if that's not going on. We're not, they're not tasking the Biden administration for not doing whatever it is they want to do. And people are upset for other reasons that have to do with economics, that have to do with this gut feeling of the decline of American prestige and power, the you know remnant things that are still left over, like the border. Didn't, didn't the border? Where did Afghanistan. That, did, did that, all of that stuff has coalesced into the, a, a national mood that is looking squarely at them because everything that we're experiencing, higher gas prices, that's what they want. American diminution of power in favor of international organizations, that's what they want. Strange, complex, new Green New Deal regulations coming down, like the French telling us that we should shower three times a week. Oh, that was French. That's what they want. They're just surprised, perhaps, to find out that we don't want it. And we know that what they want is antithetical to the American experience. So, I, no, I don't, I, whatever your original question was, I'm sure I answered it poorly, but there you go. Rob? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Like, I, I was, um, someone sent me a clip of, um, Van Jones on CNN. The voice on, of reason now. Yeah, on, on election night. And he said something really interesting. He said, like, he turned to his colleagues in the panel and said, maybe we're living in a bubble. We're not, li- we're not hearing this. We're not hearing what people are saying. And I think that was a very good diagnosis, though, too. I was like, you know, if I was there, I would have said, yes, they could continue with that. That's, that's, keep going with that. He was. I think he was pretty much dismissed, you know, by the panel. So there's, you know, if you're a Republican operative, you can sleep soundly tonight. But I think part of the problem is that is that we we is that the experience that people have of COVID is actually happening to them in three dimensions. They're outside of their house. They're in their workplace. They're living their lives. You can't scare people more than twice, right? You just can't. A haunted house, once you turn the lights on, isn't a haunted house anymore. It's only haunted because you don't know what's there. But we've already been through this. So there really isn't anything left to scare us with. There are no, we, you know, we say the third act boo in a, in, 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 in a horror movie construction. The third act boo is the, or mid act boo is the moment where you're like, duh, you just, in the middle of, the middle of something, you get a scare to kind of wake you up. That doesn't seem to be happening. The, the, the American people seem to be ready to take, like they are in France, take the masks off. And um, if you're the Democrats now, your your best bet is to, as always, is to look at Joe Manchin for leadership. And I guarantee you, Joe Manchin's constituents have taken the masks off. Sure. I don't think that they're living in fantasy land either. I don't think it's their. I'm not saying we should live in fantasy land. And I mean, I think you should get the vaccine. I hope the people listening to yes. this who have the vaccine and have not been vaccinated and are medically able to do so, I hope they do it because it's. It could easily save your life, but it won't keep you from getting COVID. And I think all of that practicality and truth, it, it just surprised me, although not surprised me, if a, if a gigantic political party, which spends billions of dollars measuring, de- desperately trying to measure voter sentiment, 
uh, and polls takes polls every night, just like the Republicans, could possibly miss this big story. And the big story is COVID is over. Yes, Rob. To quote the great philosopher John Lennon and Yoko Ono, COVID is over if you want it. Meanwhile, um, of course, as everybody knows who listens to this podcast and is probably watching at this very moment the city of Kenosha burn, Lord knows, hope not, the verdict is in. Gentlemen, you've acquitted on all counts. What do you think? Uh, you always have to, we've been talking a little bit about humility. You always have to take issue pronouncements about courtroom trials with a certain humility because you, unless you're on the jury, you don't quite know the dynamics. You don't quite know all that was presented. As best I can tell, and I did become fascinated with the case, so I watched a fair amount and I read a fair amount. As best I can tell, this is justice. That 17-year-old kid should not have been out on the street with a gun. For that matter, there shouldn't have been a riot taking place. There were all kinds of wrongs that were committed here. But that kid's gun was legal. That's why count six was uh, dismissed by the judge. Um, the kid did not, it was clearly self-defense, and this is justice being done. And honestly, we'll see what happens in Kenosha. We'll see what the reaction is. We repeat a point right. that can't be repeated too often. The accused was white. All three of the people who were in, whom he shot were white. There is no racial component to this <laughs> right. whatsoever. Zero. But None. yet somehow there it just is. doesn't exist. So my reading is justice has been done, and I am ready to build a statue to that common sense, slightly fumbly, mumbly judge <laughs> who kept that trial moving. And, um, and a jury decision is so much better than a hung jury. A jury decision yes, is so right. much better than the judge declaring a mistrial or mistrial. It is so much better just to have a jury come in and say, not guilty on one, two, three, four, five, all five counts. Right. Let him walk. I was looking at some of the uh, footage from protests outside the courtroom yesterday, which was interesting. And there was somebody who was screaming, screaming, uh, you know, somebody who wanted Rittenhouse to be put away for a long time, was screaming at a pro-Kyle demonstrator and shouting that, bring his, you know, bleepity bleep up to my neck of the woods and we'll show you how it's done, words to that effect. You know, bring him to where I'm from and we'll show you what real justice looks like. And I'm looking at this person and he says, she looks familiar. Check some websites. Sure enough, it was a Minneapolis act activist from our troubles here. And I thought, did she just cross state lines to put herself into a situation where she really shouldn't have been? Yeah, no, I think I agree with Peter. I mean, it's, it seemed, I mean, I didn't, I didn't follow all, all the intricacies of all five of those, ca uh, of those charges. Well, you've been traveling seemed, apart from anything else. Yeah, but trial. it also yeah. seems to me like the, the, the minute, the, the, minute the, the one survive, surviving victim of the gunshot said, oh, yeah, he didn't do anything until I pointed my gun at him. It was sort of like game over, and you could right. feel it being game over. And I knew it was game over because the New York Times told me it was game over on the front page in the second paragraph. So, but what's interesting is that now we, we are now going to, I think we're going to enter this period. I hope we enter, enter it peacefully, and the only crackpot savagery and total moronic behavior occurs on Twitter. Um, of the idea that now we have to work backwards from a verdict that we wanted. 
So we should change the laws so that we would get a verdict that we'd want. That is what's going to happen now. People say, well, well, that gun charge shouldn't have been dismissed. Well, it should have been because it's exactly – it was legal. That shouldn't have been legal. legal. Weapon. We should go make that if, – if that was illegal and a certain way, certain kinds of caring were illegal, then he'd be in prison, and then justice would be done. And once we enter that territory, it's just crazy town. I mean that's, that's sort of what I despair of. Right, you're absolutely right. They come up with they come up with laws that are their own sort of bill of attainders that work uh, for people in the future. But tell you what, uh, everybody's going to be talking about this. We're going to be talking about it at Ricochet. And if you would like to know where the place you can go to discuss these things without having, you know, YouTube, Facebook level nonsense being spewed, Ricochet is the place where we keep the conversation civil. Well, most of the time, and it's fun too. And it is a community, and you can join it ricochet.com slash join. And not only will you get the conversation, the member feed, the podcast, the rest of it, you'll be able to participate in the upcoming No Dumb Questions. So go to ricochet.com for all the things that you're missing out. Really? Really? You haven't left that five-star review yet? What's keeping you? Let this be a Ricochet Day where you join in, you give us the five, you give us some questions for, for no big... Please, we're counting on you. And you, and you, and you. Don't make me bring back the Rob Long member pitches. However, yeah. I would like to bring back the following names. Boland Branch, Stamps.com, Pendulum, and Aurora. Great sponsors. Support them for supporting us. Your life would be better before it because of it. And, you know, heck, into Thanksgiving we go, gentlemen. Have a fine, fine, wonderful Thanksgiving with your families. We'll see everybody here next week, and we'll see all of you at the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Feliz Dia de Gracias, Roberto. <laughs> oh, gracias. Gracias, Pedro. A la semana próxima. Sí, sí, sí. See?
Join the conversation. You don't look sick at all. I, <laughs> I've gained gained at least ten pounds since our last encounter, probably Peter, on the pandemic diet. Oh, so have I. 